Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Ali Wynn, a senior analyst with Eurasia Group's Global Macro Practice. Ali has served as a junior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a research assistant at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, and a policy analyst at the RAND Corporation. Ali, the only place you haven't worked yet is CSIS. This is great. I have to correct you there. So I actually, I got my start at CSIS. Not oh, I love that. <laughs> not in a full-time capacity, but one of the first internships that I had when I was in college was uh, at CSIS. Uh, it was oh, in summer of, summer of 2006. Uh, it was at the old location, uh, but CSIS, uh, I'm uh, indebted uh, to I'm getting I'm so made. happy to hear that. That is really awesome. So, all right, so you've, you've hit them all. This is great. <laughs> He's also been a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Skullcroft Center for Strategy and Security and a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute. In 2013, he served on a team that prepared Samantha Power for her confirmation hearing to be ambassador to the United Nations. Ali is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a David Rockefeller Fellow with the Trilateral Commission and a Security Fellow with the Truman National Security Project. He also serves on the Foreign Policy America for America's Board of Directors. But the reason I wanted him on the podcast is he just has published a book called America's Great Power Opportunity revitalizing U.S. foreign policy to meet the challenges of strategic competition. I think this is a really interesting book and an important book. Ali, I'm really grateful that you've joined me today, and I'm excited to hear more about your book. But before we do that, tell me a little bit about why did you write this book called America's Great Power Opportunity, Revitalizing U.S. Foreign Policy to Meet the Challenges of Strategic Competition? Well, sure. Well, well, first of all, Dan, uh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real honor and privilege to be uh, engaging with you uh, and to be, albeit virtually, uh, but to be uh, returning to CSIS. So I first began writing the book in earnest, I would say in late 2019. And of course, you'll remember in late 2019, a great power competition in Washington, it's in the air, it's in the water, it's, it's ubiquitous. I wanted, as someone who's interested in U.S. foreign policy, who's interested in the evolution of geopolitics, I said to myself, well, I better get a handle on this term if I'm going to be able to at least participate meaningfully in and somewhat lucidly in conversations that are going on around town. Because of the ubiquity of the term, my presumption was that among policymakers, uh, members of Congress, analysts who were using the term, I presumed that there was some shared understanding of the term, shared understanding of the definition, shared understanding of its implications for U.S. foreign policy. And what I discovered in the course of my research, in the course of my conversations, and I try to make this point in the book, is that there's a marked gap between the ubiquity of the term on the one hand and the underspecification of the term on the other hand. So the ubiquity I kind of got at just a minute ago, it really has achieved escape velocity such that it's not only a prominent term in government circles, but it's also a prominent term in just broader mainstream commentary. At a 30,000 foot level, I think that there's a fair bit of agreement on what a great power competition denotes. So great power competition denotes, it points to the reality that interstate competition, although it has waxed and waned intensity over 
the past four centuries or so, it's an enduring feature of international relations, or at least it has been since the Treaty of Westphalia. It nods to the reality that the United States, while remaining the world's lone superpower, is relatively not as preeminent as it was at the turn of the century. And it nods, of course, to the reality that the United States now faces two main nation-state external challengers, a resurgent China and irredentist Russia. And so great power competition, it distills a number of important drivers of or, or trends in contemporary geopolitics. But in terms of the gap between ubiquity and underspecification, when you ask individuals, well, what does that diagnosis or what does that definition imply for U.S. foreign policy? You get not only many different assessments, in some cases you get contradictory assessments. So I'll, I'll give you one example. Take America's withdrawal from Afghanistan roughly about a year ago. What I found striking was if you take the most ardent proponents of the decision to withdraw and you take uh, in equal measure the most vociferous opponents of the decision to withdraw, they both cited great power competition as a rationale for their arguments. So what do I mean? Proponents of the withdrawal said that, look, the United States has gone on this now two decade long strategic detour in the Middle East and Central Asia. It's got bogged down with counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. And in this two decade long interregnum, China and Russia have been allowed to contest US influence largely uh, without interference. And so by withdrawing from Afghanistan, by drawing down our military footprint more broadly in the Middle East and Central Asia, the United States will be able to train its sites more squarely on China and Russia. So proponents said withdrawal is going to allow us to focus more on the challenges of great power competition. Opponents of the decision said, if you withdraw from Afghanistan, if you reduce your footprint in the Middle East, you're going to allow your great power competitors to exert more influence in the Middle East. You're going to allow them to make military inroads, economic inroads, diplomatic inroads, and you're going to signal weakness to your allies and partners. You're going to signal to them that you're an unreliable partner. So both proponents of the withdrawal and opponents of the withdrawal cited great power competition. What I found is that as time has passed, and I think that really great power competition, it really achieves escape velocity with the publication of the Trump administration's national security strategy in December of 2017, and then a month later, uh, the Department of Defense's release of its uh, national defense strategy. In the intervening years since the publication of those two high-level strategic documents, the interpretations of what great power competition means for U.S. foreign policy, they haven't steadily grown more circumscribed. They've steadily grown more expansive to the point of being maximalist. And now, in fact, Dan, it's very common when I engage with colleagues, when I engage with folks on, on the Hill and others, when I ask, what does great power competition mean for U.S. foreign policy? It's very common to hear great power competition means that the United States is in a long-term, multifaceted global competition with China and Russia to determine nothing less than the contours of world order. Now, you may accept that proposition, and it's indeed the case that the United States is competing globally with China and Russia. So I think the interpretation that most observers have is that great power competition implies that the United States is competing with China and Russia basically ubiquitously, ubiquitously geographically, ubiquitously functionally, to determine nothing less than the contours of, of world order. One might accept that proposition. The concern that I have with that proposition from a prescriptive point of view is because it is so sweeping, uh, because it's so, one might argue, maximalist, the question is not so much what the United States should do under that diagnosis, but what it shouldn't do. And I think that the essence of strategy is to accept trade-offs, often difficult trade-offs, unpalatable trade-offs, uh, very painful trade-offs. I think that it's a very maximalist conception that perhaps militates against the formulation of a clear strategy. And so just to summarize, 
I think the gray power competition descriptively has much to recommend it. It distills a number of important drivers of contemporary geopolitics. I think that prescriptively, it can lend itself to contradictory imperatives. And two, it can lend itself to quite maximalist interpretations of U.S. foreign policy that don't really tell the United States what not to do, only what to do. And so I wanted to write this book um, to see if, if I could help bridge the gap a little bit between the ubiquity of the term and the underspecification of the term, and hopefully to help think a little bit more about how the United States can compete more sustainably with China and Russia going forward. Ali, in your book, you talk about searching for a post-Cold War balance and being a little weary of a new U.S.-China Cold War narrative. And what do you mean by that? Even though I, in the book, even though I set forth a critique of the analogy, I hasten to note, one, we must learn from history. And I think that one of the most important professions or one of the most important undertakings uh, now is applied history, Uh, not only just studying history, but thinking about what lessons we can learn from previous periods of geopolitical turbulence and how those lessons might map onto the present. So applied history is vitally important. And the Cold War is an obvious and rich example for us to study because the Cold War furnishes the only example we have of long-term, multifaceted, globe-spanning competition with an external competitor. The Cold War, it preoccupied U.S. foreign policy rightly for the better part of half a century, so we must study the Cold War. And I would say that there are lessons that we should learn from the Cold War, and I discuss some of those in the book. But I wish we had uh, Ernie May and Dick Neustadt with us. They wrote the classic book, Thinking in Time, in which they talk about not only the uses of history, Uh, but also the abuses of history and the limits to historical analogies. And I think that sometimes if we try to overlearn from historical episodes, we end up obscuring more than we end up clarifying. Well, what do I mean? You know, during the Cold War, so I'll just enumerate some of the differences, recognizing, of course, that the appeal of the analogy is self-evident. During the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union had very little in the way of trade and technological interdependence. And that lack of interdependence was by design. The United States established a post-war order that largely excluded the Soviet Union and Soviet-aligned countries. Uh, It did not want Soviet influence to penetrate that order that it was establishing. Today, the United States and China, even though they are selectively disentangling, they remain substantially and perhaps uh, inextricably intertwined in terms of trade, in terms of finance, in terms of technology, number one. Number two, just staying on, on the topic of economics, During the Cold War, if you look at estimates from economic historians, and there's some quibbles about the exact proportion, but the Soviet Union, at the peak of its economic power, had a gross domestic product that was roughly between 40% and 45% as large as that of the United States, at the peak of its power. China today has an economy that's already about 80% as large as that of the United States. So China is a far more formidable economic competitor. China is far more deeply integrated into the post-war order more generally than the Soviet Union was. During the Cold War, it's true, of course, that there was a very substantial non-aligned movement, but they were also very rigid ideological blocks. We had NATO, of course, and then we had the Warsaw Pact. And if you were a member of NATO, it was very difficult for you to engage simultaneously in diplomacy or, or trade with the Soviet Union and vice versa. If you were a member of the Warsaw Pact, you were expected to march in lockstep with the Soviet Union. I think that today, geopolitics is far more fluid. I think it's far more messy, such that even some of America's closest allies and partners, they will align with the United States in certain contexts and on certain issues, 
but they won't align with the United States in other contexts and on other issues. I think a classic example, of course, is, is India. India, on a bilateral basis and also under the auspices of the Quad, has emerged as one of the United States' most important partners in contesting a resurgent China. But India and the United States don't necessarily see eye to eye on dealing with Russia. So I think that today's geopolitics is more fluid. And if you look at statements coming out of leaders from, say, Indonesia, which will be hosting the G20, uh, leaders of Singapore, leaders of India, many countries believe that, one, they shouldn't have to make a choice between the United States and China. And two, they reject the notion that such a choice even obtains. They recognize that they have to do business with the United States. They have to do business with, with China. So uh, one last difference between uh, the Cold War and the present. And this difference, I should say, is a, a speculative difference. During the Cold War, it ended decisively. We know how the Cold War ended, and we can state definitively there was a victor in the Cold War, the United States. There was a loser in the Cold War, namely the Soviet Union, which collapsed in quite spectacular fashion. Now, one can't theoretically rule out the possibility that China might implode in spectacular fashion, but I think that it's far more likely that for all of its myriad socioeconomic challenges at home, despite its increasingly contested and challenged external strategic environment, I think it's likely that, that China is likely to endure in one form or another in perpetuity. And so if you accept that hypothesis that China is unlikely to collapse and that the United States and China are going to have to find a way of coexisting in perpetuity, then the question for the United States is not how to pursue a decisive victory, but instead how to achieve and sustain a strained cohabitation. And that latter undertaking requires a much more patient, much more careful, much more incremental form of diplomacy. So I think that there are a number of differences between contemporary geopolitics and the Cold War. Nonetheless, we should mind the Cold War for lessons. We should learn from it as actively as possible, but we should also recognize its limits. That's great. That makes a lot of sense. What do you propose we do different given that the world that we've found ourselves in? So I would say one of the points that I try to make in the book is that perhaps your question, Dan, it kind of segues into what I hope to distill or encapsulate with this notion of America's great power opportunity. As you'll guess, of course, great power opportunity, it's a play on, on great power competition, this, this ubiquitous construct. I think that for a very long time, and one might argue dating back to the late 1930s, uh, and so really dating back to America's confrontations with Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany, the United States has largely, not exclusively, but the United States is largely dating back to the 1930s, either predicated its foreign policy either on the existence of major external competitors or upon the search for external competitors to discipline its foreign policy. I think that because of China's competitive missteps, which we can talk about, because of Russia's competitive missteps, which we can talk about, I think that the United States has a great power opportunity to articulate and pursue a foreign policy that isn't beholden to the decisions of its competitors, that isn't driven by the decisions of its competitors, but rather than pursuing a defensive reactionary foreign policy, I think that the United States has an opportunity to execute a foreign policy that speaks more to its aspirations than to its anxieties. Um, one of the narratives, Dan, that I encountered when I was writing the book, I, did, I haven't encountered this narrative as much since Russia invaded Ukraine, but it was a narrative that I encountered a lot during the course of researching the book. I encountered this narrative that Vladimir Putin is a stealthy, ubiquitous, strategic grandmaster who's outclassing this hapless United States, that he is behind every contested election, that he is behind every fraying U.S. alliance and partnership. You really got the sense that you know, Putin is playing three-dimensional chess. Uh, and now, of course, Russia with its invasion of Ukraine, I think that it has done a great disservice to its own long-term strategic outlook. 
Russia today is far more beholden to China than it was prior to its invasion of Ukraine. Russia has given the West a new lease on life. It has given the transatlantic project a new lease on life. It has given NATO a new lease on life. And while it is true that Russia is presently blunting the impact of sanctions via capital controls, via exploitation of high energy prices, those sanctions are, over the medium to long term, going to begin to curtail Russia's ability to access the technological inputs in the capital that it will require to restore its military forces to contribute to its long-term economic development. So I think that Russia, yes, it has reminded the rest of the world with its invasion of Ukraine that it matters, that it is an enduring power, that it is a nuclear-armed power. But I think that it's done so at the cost of really undercutting its long-term strategic outlook. Now, turning to China, China isn't as blundering as Russia. China's economy is roughly 10 times as large as Russia's economy. It's far more integrated into the post-war order than Russia is. And yet, I think that China has squandered what one might call rather its great power opportunity. I think that China in early 2020 had a great power opportunity of its own. So you remember the narratives, Dan, if we rewind the clock to the end of the first quarter of 2020 or the the beginning of the second quarter of 2020, what were the narratives at the time? The narrative about China was China has contained COVID at home. China has contained a recession at home. And having done so, it's now training its sites outwards. It's shipping personal protective equipment kits to the rest of the world. It's, it's dispatching teams of doctors to countries in distress. And what was the narrative about the United States? The narrative about the United States was the United States is flailing. It can't contain COVID. It can't contain a recession. It's being convulsed by protests against racial injustice. And given that discrepancy in narrative, uh, there were many observers who believed in early 2020, that a power transition between the United States and China had really begun in earnest because of America's mismanagement of the pandemic. Given that discrepancy in narratives, imagine if, here's an an interesting thought experiment. Imagine if China had taken any number of the following steps to bring its diplomatic stature rather in greater alignment with its economic head. Imagine if China had said, you know, we have the United States where we want it. We're going to temporarily press pause on cracking down on Hong Kong We are going to press pause temporarily on intimidating Taiwan. We're going to take steps to stabilize our relationships with Australia, India, with Japan, with South Korea, basically the formidable democracies in our neighborhood. We're going to get the comprehensive agreement on investment across the finish line of the European Union. And we're going to take steps to stabilize our relationship with the United States. Oh, and by the way, we're going to we're going to relieve debt that's owed to us by Belt and Road Initiative participating countries. I think that if China had taken any of those steps, its diplomatic standing would be far more closely aligned with its economic head. I think that the United States would find it much harder to compete with China. Where does China find itself today? Largely as a result of a counterproductive course of diplomacy that it really began in earnest with the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, with the exception of its relationship with Russia, and I think that even that relationship now is becoming something of a reputational albatross around China's neck, Virtually every one of China's major power relationships is either stagnating or deteriorating. The United States on a bipartisan basis is taking a dimmer view of China and wants to strengthen Washington's relationship with Taipei. The European Union is recalibrating its disposition towards China. NATO, you look at its latest strategic concept, talks about China in much starker, harsher language. The Quad, which prior to the pandemic, many observers thought was one of these geopolitical abstractions that was just muddling along. The Quad has a new lease on life. And so both Russia and China, albeit in different ways, I think that they have really undercut their long-term strategic outlooks. And their competitive missteps give the United States an opportunity to focus more on renewing its competitive advantages at home and abroad, 
to articulate an affirmative vision of world order that can gain favor with allies and partners, and to really put China and Russia on the defensive. So rather than ceding the terms of competition to China and Russia, rather than allowing China and Russia to dictate how we compete, we should be setting the terms of competition. We should be articulating an affirmative vision of world order and saying, China and Russia, if you don't want to get left behind strategically, you need to be contributing to the vision of world order that we have articulated. So in my book, the conception of America's great power opportunity is recognizing, of course, that the management of strategic frictions with China and Russia is, should, and must. It is a core component of U.S. foreign policy, and it should and must remain a core component of U.S. foreign policy. But let's not allow our competitors to dictate the terms of competition. Let us instead dictate the terms of competition in a way that will renew our competitive advantages at home and abroad. Ali, what are our comparative advantages? We have a number of them. And in some cases, I would submit that they are unique. It's a familiar litany, but I think that it's one enumerating nonetheless. So at home, uh, our ecosystem of innovation remains unrivaled in the world. Our system of higher education remains unrivaled in the world. Our demographic outlook, uh, our demographic outlook now, our demographic outlook, it, it isn't a perfect picture. But our demographic outlook is far more favorable to China's demographic outlook, far more favorable to Russia's demographic outlook. And in part, it's because the United States continues to be so welcoming to immigrants from around the world. I'm a child of immigrants. Uh, My parents were born in Pakistan. Uh, They left Pakistan when they were in their 20s. They left everything behind. And they came to the United States, not necessarily because the United States had the world's foremost armed forces or because the United States had the world's largest economy. They were attracted to the United States because they believed in America as an idea. And I believe in America as an idea. And when I asked my parents, you know, why did you leave everything behind and come to the United States? They said, Ali, the United States is a place where you can go. And no matter where you come from around the world, you can come to the United States. And whether you go to school, whether you set up a business, whatever it is that you do, America will give you the tools that you need to succeed. America will give our children the tools that they need to succeed. And they said, that is the American idea that anyone from around the world, you don't have to have been born in the United States, but you can help to contribute to writing the next chapter of the American story. That's the reason that the United States is the world's only superpower. The late prime minister of Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, he was one of the few interlocutors when he was alive who commanded equal respect in and had equal access to uh, US officials and Chinese officials. And he was often asked, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, Do you believe that China will overtake the United States for global preeminence? And he said, the United States has one critical competitive advantage over China that China will never be able to replicate. He said, China can draw on the talents of roughly 1.4 billion people. The United States can draw on the talents of the whole world. You don't have to have been born in the United States to be an American. So those are a number of important advantages internally. Uh, Externally, of course, uh, the United States has the only reserve currency in the world. The United States has the only uh, military that is capable of projecting power into any corner of the world. The United States also has an unrivaled diplomatic network. If you go back a little over a decade ago, uh, it's very worth reading. Uh, Yan Tsui Tong, a professor at Tsinghua University, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times entitled How China Can Defeat America. But he concedes in this op-ed that he wrote for the New York Times. He says the crux of competition between the United States and China is going to come down to who has more, quote, high quality friends, by which he means allies and partners. And Professor Yan in this op-ed said that until and unless China is able to establish a diplomatic network that can rival America's in depth and in scope, it would be unable to overtake the United States for global preeminence. 
So internally and externally, those are some of America's competitive advantages. And I think that if we renew those and repurpose those for the challenges of the 21st century, I see no reason why uh, the United States cannot continue to flourish. The United States has defied many prognostications of decline before. I don't see why it can't do so again. Now, I don't want to sound overly sanguine. Uh, we are not living in 1992. Today's geopolitical environment is more contested. It is more turbulent than the environment that prevailed 30 years ago. Now, let's not uh, forget that the United States remains the world's preeminent power. It has a range of competitive advantages that are, are unique in many cases. And I think that if the United States focuses more on renewing its competitive advantages rather than allowing itself to be dictated to or driven by China and Russia, I think that we'll be just fine. Ali, I agree with you. I think migration is a unique comparative advantage of the United States. I think we get at least a million folks that come to the United States on a legal basis every year. And I think as long as we have sort of a, a level of folks coming and are attracted to coming and want to come, I think it's a sign of our health as a country. Obviously, we have to come up with ways to manage that in a proper way. But I do think as long as we've got that, I don't see people banging down the door to move to Moscow or Beijing. Agreed. So it makes, it makes us a, a unique place in that way. The demography issues are really interesting and something I'm quite interested in. So this is great, Ali. I congratulate you on your book, The Great Power Opportunity by Ali Wynn. It's been out since July. I recommend everyone go out and buy it and take a look at it. It's part of, I think, a new universe of books that are coming out looking at, okay, this new environment, how should we think about our defense policy and our foreign policy and our soft power policy? Ali, congratulations. It's a great book. I recommend everyone go out and read it. Dan, thank you so much. You know, my only regret is that we didn't do this in person, but hopefully we'll see each other again in person soon enough. Uh, I love your podcast. I love the work you're doing. I'm looking forward to reading your new book. Thanks, Ali. Congrats. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 